All right, I'm going to warn you a little bit this morning. Um, I'm going to try to tie what I believe is the, in, is the thread that ties the entire Scripture together today. So if you have your Bibles, get them ready. I need you to, it's a little bit, I mean, a lot more Scripture than maybe normal. But I need it to be able to show you the line that progresses all the way from creation to the end. And it's basically a very massive love story. My wife loves Hallmark movies. And every guy in here just went, eh. Love stories. Well, this one tops all of the love stories that have ever been written. And it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. I'm going to have to ask you to really focus in, lean in, pay attention, get your scripture and stay with me through this little bit of a journey. It's not confusing, but it's fairly, in my opinion, a massive concept. It goes from the beginning to the end of the God that we know. So, this love story, a very large love story, is the father seeking a bride for his son. The story is of the father, creator God, creating, looking for a bride for his son. And you're going to see when we watch, walk this through how this works out in scripture. See, God was looking for a bride who was totally devoted, who was pure of heart, in love with only him, submitted as Paul taught and is perfect in his sight. God was looking for that kind of a bride for his son. The purpose, God chose to live in covenant with the Hebrew people so that the blessing of God over them would be a light so that when the rest of the nations of the world saw what God was doing for this chosen people, it would shine a light in their darkness or draw men from all across the planet to know that there is one true God. That was the relationship God wanted with this group of people called the Hebrews. Now, history of the bride, I want you to t stay with me just a moment here, a little, little technical, but the 12 tribes that made up Israel, made up the Jewish or Hebrew people, use the term Hebrew people, that made up these 12 tribes, about the time of Solomon, divided. They split up. Ten of the tribes went north, and it was called, they're called Israel. Keep that in your mind. This is significant. The ten tribes that went north are now known as Israel. There were two tribes that went south to Jerusalem, and they were of Judah or the Jews. So you have the Israelites that are of the north, Jews that were of Jerusalem. So they're divided now, these two groups of people. It's important that you keep that in your head today. Now, God chose a bride, bride, go with me to Ezekiel, I want to show you where this happened, uh, to Ezekiel chapter 16, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14. This is where God made the betrothal offering to Israel, to the, to the Hebrew people. I will offer you to become my, uh, a partner, my chosen people, and here's how he said it. Then I passed by you, I saw you, and behold, you were at the time of love. 
So I spread my robe, remember covenant thoughts? I spread my robe over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore promises to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you become mine, declares the Lord. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth, put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hand and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, pretty contemporary, a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your dress was of fine linen Silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. When your fame went forth among the nations, on account of your beauty, it was perfect. Because my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. Now I'm going to show you, that was when God offered to the Hebrew people for them to be his his partner, his bride, so to speak. Now, I'm going to show you the next part is the tragedy. You know, in the Hallmark movies, there's always a tragedy. Something in there that turns, well, uh, it, the tragedy's here, and it's the tragedy's in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and 32. I'm going to let you get to it. Now, hold that one and go back just a little bit more. I skipped a part. Go to Jeremiah 3. We will come to 31.31 in a moment. But go to Jeremiah 3. This is where God reveals something that happened between God and the Hebrew people. Very significant. I overlooked it for the largest portion of my life. I thought the word Jew and Israel and Hebrew were all the same thing. And they're not. The Hebrews are the, are the group of people choice, chosen. Israelite or the Israelites are the ten tribes. The Jews are the bottom two tribes. They're two different categories of this same group of people. Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 8. See what God does with this chosen bride, Israel. You have seen what faithless Israel has done. She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree, and has committed adultery there. That's basically the worship of the Asherah, which is the Asherah pole, and Baal, which are, there are numerous Baal gods. Uh, if each section in this room represented a piece of property, there would be a Baal god for that section, a Baal god for this section, a Baal god, so to, and so on. But they're foreign, basically demonically motivated uh, distractions from what God called his people to be. And so because of that, it went on to say, I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, God was saying. But she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah, that's the bottom two tribes, uh, that Judah, be Judah and Benjamin were the bottom two tribes, I, she said, I, he said, I saw that also in Judah. But I gave faithless Israel, mark this in your Bible, her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. 
Do you see what just happened? God was in covenant with these people and said, you do these things, I want you to be my bride. But Israel, the top ten, the ten tribes, were ungodly throughout, were prone to chase after false gods, and God himself divorced them. Have you ever thought about that? God himself divorced Israel. Gotta let that sink in. Then look in Jeremiah 31. There's a hope given here for a future thing that could make this okay. The hope of a restoration. Jeremiah said in 31, 31, and 32. Told you there's a lot of scripture today. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. That covenant's over because it's broken. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Do you see how God is tying everything based on a marriage covenant concept from beginning to the end? From marriage, from betrothal to marriage to divorce to the hope of restoration in the future. Now, if you know the Old Testament law, this is an impossibility for Jesus, for God to remarry his divorced wife who has been unfaithful. I'll prove it to you. Look in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24. God himself is not going to break his law. You have to understand that. He cannot. There's no turning in him. There's no shadow in him. It is right and it is wrong. In Deuteronomy 24, when God cannot, uh, here's the law, the Old Testament says, a man cannot remarry a wife that has been divorced after she has remarried another man. Here it says, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Are you there? Still here a few leaves. If a man marries a woman, this is Old Testament law. Just keep it in your head, Old Testament concept. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after he leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again, for she has been defiled. That would be detestables in the eyes of the Lord. That's the Old Testament law standard. So, after Jesus, or God, and his son divorced Israel, it would have been impossible for him to come back and create an environment where he could remarry the girl that had been divorced. You see a problem with that. So how did he overcome the obstacle? He died. See, you're released from the law when one of the partners died. He died on the cross. And in his death, he fulfilled all of the law. 
and yet set himself for freedom in order to go back after that divorced wife and bring her back into covenant with himself. This will make more sense in just a moment as to where we are. You know what allowed him to do this? He died, then he resurrected. He came back to life to create a new covenant, to have a marriage, a remarriage with divorced Israel. Now the Jews, Judah, the lower tribe, remained in covenant with Yahweh, with God, but not because they were faithful. If you go back and read Old Testament about the Jews, the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, are you staying with me? It's kind of detailed, I get it. But stay with me. When they were as unfaithful as Israel, I mean, they were a mess. They, they, they went after idols just like Israel did. But God kept them in covenant. And here's a very significant reason why. Not because they deserved it. But because he had made a promise back to Abraham from this line will come a savior. So he could not divorce from that line of the Jews of which David came out of the Jews and out of, out of the tribe of, J, of, of David, we know eventually came the Messiah, Jesus. So God kept those two groups in covenant just so that his promise would not ever be broken and could be fulfilled. Good news. I want you to look at how the blood covenant is tied to the wedding. This is kind of going back for the last several weeks we've been talking about the blood covenant. If you get this, uh, if you ever go to a wedding ceremony again, you'll never see it the same. Because every component of a modern marriage ceremony are the steps and the components of a blood covenant. The seven steps. And I'm about to show you how those work. The first thing is this, will be the exchange of robes. Remember that. That is seen in the betrothal period. That's when the, the groom would make a proposal to the, to the bride-to-be if she would come and be his marriage partner. And so they would exchange the robes. That's what took place there. In Exodus 19.3, Moses went up to God. This is when God made the proposal to Israel. Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, Keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That was when God offered that to Israel. If you will come to me, follow the commands I give you, you will be a bride that will be beautiful for the rest of the world to see. Then Israel answered that in Exodus 19. Here's here's how they responded. The people said together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Okay, what happens next? In the wedding ceremony, after the proposal has been given and accepted, the groom leaves. You're going to start seeing this tie together in a minute. The groom leaves to go build in the Hebrew culture what they call a kupa. It's a room built for the family, to, for the new married couple to go and to consummate 
their marriage and a place. And in that culture, they would build uh, on the father's house, they would just build another room. So if there were numerous kids around the father's house would be more rooms that would be added on. So the groom, when the proposal was accepted, would go away and build this house. And he didn't know how long it would take. It would do, but the bride would just simply have to wait until that occurred. And it, um, in John 4, 14, 3, see if this rings a bell for you. Jesus said, as the groom of the bride, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be also. He went away. It's taken him a little over two days to build it. 2,000 years. 1,000 years is the same as a day to God. Remember that? So it's been about a couple of days since he's been away. But Jesus is right now building the kupa for you, the bride. He says, and if I'm going to go do that, I'm coming back after you. So there's a time to be ready for what he's doing. Because when he was gone, it, these were called the days of consecration. Exodus chapter 19. Turn there. Let me hear the sounds. Exodus 19.10. Are you staying with me? Two people are shaking their head. Elbow the person beside you. Because this is not story-based. I mean, this is kind of a big, maybe one of the largest theological presentations I've ever made to you. And I'm wanting you to catch it. In Exodus 19, this is what, and the Lord said to Moses, go tell the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready for this day when he comes back. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai and in the sight of all the people. Then we're going to skip over. I'm going to show you how that ties into Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. You're going to remember this story, but now you're going to see these are the, this is the uh, ten virgins, and they're in the period of time waiting for the groom to return, and they were to do some specific things. I will just tell you, this is the time of the church right now. We are to do specific things as we wait for the groom to come back for the bride. Here's what it says in Matthew 25, 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but didn't take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Seemed like it took him a long time to build that, that kupa. And, and honestly, how many people have heard and thought, it's been a long time. His promise was there, but... For 2,000 years, how long is this going to wait? So they were feeling the same thing. The wise took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the groom. The bridegroom is coming. Come on, everybody, let's go meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps, the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. 
No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready to meet, ready, went in with him to meet in the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. See, while the groom has been away, the betrothed girl was to be preparing herself the entire time that he's away, preparing herself for the wedding that would be coming. The age of the church is for a time for us on an individual basis to be preparing for the day that the Lord returns. If you have prepared and you've received Jesus as your Savior, you've asked him to forgive you and he came in, by the power of his spirit and indwelt you, that puts you right into the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. So we are to be consecrated and prepared and always ready looking for the moment that the bridegroom returns. That's the most important element of the time. How do you get ready? Buy oil for your lamp. Simply this, the oil almost always represents the Holy Spirit. The lamp vessel is your body, is your life. You are, during this period of time as we're waiting for the groom to prepare a place for the bride, we are to have our, our life consecrated and have enough oil. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. How do you get the presence of the Holy Spirit in you? It happens when you bring your brokenness You're being, if you're outside of covenant and you want to come into covenant, when you do come into covenant with the Lord, he puts his Holy Spirit within you. And once the Spirit is within you, you have all of God. It's it's a hard concept for me to gather. That all of the power, the glory, the, the wisdom, the strength, the giftings of God are all present within us. But it's saying that only half of the group that was there looking were ready. That troubles me a little bit, doesn't you? That only about half were ready. The other half looked like they were ready. They had the vessels, but they just didn't have the oil. They were religious, but they were not in relationship with the Lord. So that was all under the robe. The rest of this is going to go faster. The exchange of belts. Remember that next thing? This is the promises. In the name of God, we say to one another, I will take you to be my marriage covenant partner, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death separates us. That's a betrothal promise. I am promising to you. Then we go to the exchange of cutting the covenant. Remember, it is an animal sacrifice where they slit the throat. I don't, I don't want to be too graphic for, I don't see a lot of kids, but they slit the throat of the animal and let it bleed out. Remember, they sever the animal down the center and they put one part of the sacrifice over here and one part of the sacrifice here. So in our wedding covenants, what do we do? The husband and the bride walk down the center of the sacrifice. Par- uh, groom on one side, family. Bride family on the other side represents the sacrifice given for this relationship. 
So they walked to the center of the sacrifice, just like they did in the blood covenant of the Old Testament. Then these promises were spoken. I will love you, comfort you, honor and keep you in sickness and in health. And forsaking all others, I will keep myself only unto you as long as we both shall live. They make promises. Then they exchange the blood. Remember where we talk about cutting the, that palm of the hand and they would mingle that? In our, in our day, in the, the picture of this is in the uh, consummation of the marriage. It's the sexual unity, the union. It's where the mingling of the blood occurs in the, covenant, in the marriage covenant. So they're fulfilling that part of it as well. Then they exchange names. Now in our culture, it's primarily the, wa- the wife or the bride who takes the name of the husband. In other cultures, both names are shared with each other. But that's what's left in the American culture. And then, remember when they would take the blood and they would cut at the place for the mingling of blood, then they would put um, stuff in that cut in order to make a scar? Remember that part of the covenant teaching? Well, we've turned it into now, this is the picture of the covenant. We use rings now. Remember what the pastor will say? Are there rings to symbolize this covenant? And that's what that is. It's an outward evidence to everybody that sees they're in covenant with somebody. Then they would go to exchange the memorial meal, the wedding reception dinner. Remember, it's a seven-day party because Jesus' first uh, miracle, where was it? The wedding in Canaan, remember that? And he turned uh, water into wine. It was a seven-day party. And remember, when he came, they were in crisis. They had already run out of wine. And Jesus did this miracle on behalf of his mom's request. And then the, the guy over the wedding later in the week says, you're saving the best wine until now. What's the deal? Most people do good wine front, and when they get drunk, then they don't care. He said, no, everything you're saving the best. What is this? tells us about the God we serve. What he has for us next is always best. The, new, the reason for the New Testament covenant. Watch this. God sent his son to pay for the sin of Israel's adultery. So Jesus came to die on the cross to spill his blood to become the sacrifice to pay for what Israel did so that they could potentially come back into a marriage covenant with him. In the New Testament now. We're over in the New Testament. Remember, God made a covenant with Abraham for his chosen people, and he, he was the one that said that he would pay the death price for the failure or the brokenness of this covenant. God said that back in the Old Testament. That he would take the responsibility if this covenant is broken. He said, I will pay the death price. That's why Jesus went to the cross to pay the death price for an unfaithful Israel. All right, let's get to the real issue. If this new covenant is for the purposes of redeeming Israel, the ten tribes, where does that leave us? If you're not an Israelite, where does that leave us? Turn to Matthew 22, please. 
We're going to start in Matthew 22, starting in the second verse, and we're going to go down through 14. <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And may I tell you, that's, that's the Israelites. He had sent a request for them to come to be uh, married to him, and they, ref they refused his request. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But Israel, if you know anything about how they responded to Jesus being the Messiah, they rejected him, and here's what they said. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, that's the prophets, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. It's about to get good news here for us. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he said, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many were invited, but few are chosen. Interesting passage, but this is where the teaching begins to open up. When the Lord says, if Israel isn't going to reject me and not come into covenant with me, I'm going to open it up to all peoples. That's good news. That's really good news. That me and you, you know, we may have Israelite blood in you. I don't know, but I'm assuming I'm a Gentile. I would have had no chance. I would have had no chance except for Israel rejecting. God says, now I'm going to open up my, my offer to anyone that you can find who will come in. And that last verse, do you see it? There were some who tried to get into the wedding, but they didn't have the robe on. They didn't have on the, they had not ever been in relationship with Jesus. They had never been covered by the robe of righteousness. And they tried to get in, but they were identified because they didn't have the robe. Romans, I'm getting close. You with me? Romans uh, 9. I'm real close, close to the end. Romans 9, verse 22 is where we want to start. I want to show you how Paul ties this all together toward the New Testament. Romans 9.22 What if God, choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the object of His wrath? That would be those, all everybody outside of a covenant with God is going to come under the wrath of God. People outside of covenant. Prepare for destruction. What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy? Who's that? Israel. Whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Thank you, Jesus. And he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. 
I will call her my loved one who was not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where, it's, where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. As challenging as it is, and as probably feebly I tried to bring this picture to you today, that is the overview of all from the Old Testament, God seeking a bride for his son. Founder made the offer, she accepted, they were married, they were divorced, but God still wanted to come after Israel and prepared a way through his son to, be, to die to the law, to pay the price of blood for her failure, and to bring her back. They have not yet accepted his proposal. Some have, of course. But the majority of Israel has not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. In the future, it says that they will. Many, many will come. In our, it's not now, but in, in our future somewhere. They will accept him. Right now, they haven't. And so we're in the age of Gentiles that the Lord allows us all to come in. Everyone in here. This groom has gone away. And he's preparing a place for you. For us. Can you imagine what it's going to look like? Have you read descriptions of heaven? If I had a lot of time, I'd just tell you about what it's all like. These walls and these streets and these, this tree that's growing over this river of life that produces fruit in its season. I could tell you all this fantastic thing that being prepared. But he's preparing you a place, a room. And he said, in my father's house, this is that Hebrew concept, in my father's house, there are many of these rooms for you to be brought into in relationship. It all comes down to this. Because of what Jesus did to pay the death price for all of our sin, for all of our adultery, is that there's an invitation to come. All you have to do is come and join him. Now the question is, have you done that? And I didn't ask you, did your grandpa do that or your grandma do that? I didn't ask you if your dad or your mom did that. I didn't even, I'm not even asking you whether your brother or your sister has done that. What I'm asking, have you personally come before Jesus and say, Lord, thank you for paying my price, my sin price, my divorce price, my unfaithfulness price. You paid for it. Have you done it? And then have you gotten your vessel ready full of oil, full of the Spirit? so that we're, our lamps will be burning when he returns. We will not have fallen asleep, because the scripture says that many have fallen asleep. But if you're ready and you're prepared and you got the oil, then you're, you may be resting at times, but your eyes are going to be always on the return of the groom. So the question is, are you ready? 